Father, it's hard for us to express um, how much we owe you. Just singing that line, it's your breath in our lungs. Were it not for the life that you give through our Lord Jesus Christ, what would we be? And so we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to know you the way we do as a father. We thank you for the opportunity to know our Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior. And we thank you for the opportunity to be able to follow you here on this planet, reaching out to lost people and trying to let them know about what you have done through our Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a story about a young Texan boy. And uh, he went up to Alaska, and in Alaska, he fell in love with this girl. And, you know, there was a time in our history when Texas used to be something, but now it's just one suburb after another, unless you get out to West Texas someplace. And uh, uh, he went to ask this, this, this father, he said, I would love to marry your daughter. I, I, I want to marry your daughter. And this Alaskan father looked at him and he said, well, son, this is a rough land we live in here. And I just can't let anybody marry my daughter. He said, you, you have proved that you're man enough to do it. And this Texas boy, he said, well, sir, sir, I come from the right place. I can do it. You, you just put me to the test. I can do it. He said, okay, so here's what you got to do. You have to do three things for, for me. You have to be able to go out. It was the morning. Before noon, you've got to bring back 500 pounds of salmon that you've caught. And then you need to stand in front of the biggest grizzly bear you can find, and you need to put him down with a single bullet. And then there's this Eskimo I know. You've got to be able to kiss an Eskimo on the lips, son. Boy, I thought about it a little bit. He said, I'm from Texas, sir. I can do that. So, lo and behold, shortly before noon, the door opens up and he starts carting in boxes of wild-caught salmon. In fact, some of them were still flopping in the box. And he says, I'm going to go do that next thing. I'll be back in a little bit. An hour and a half later, he shows up. He walks in with that gun. He is torn to bits, but proud. Texas proud. And he looks at that father, he says, Now you show me that Eskimo I'm supposed to shoot with that single bullet. Love gives you wings. <laughs> what you won't do for love? Well, that's kind of what we're talking about this morning here. Uh, we are talking about loving the lost. And um, uh, we have a particular passage here. And in this passage... Uh, Jesus is talking about this love for lost people. And uh, I'm just going to say love gives you wings. You will try all sorts of things, and this is what we're going to be talking about today, what love will drive you to do. Now, this thing that we're talking about, John introduced it last week, it's really a trio of things that are very unified, three stories that Jesus told, and they all hang together. You've got the lost sheep. And then you have the lost coin, and you have the lost son. And I'm going to be talking about these, but what I want to draw attention to when we get to a particular point is what is usually not emphasized about these stories. And the question is going to be for every one of us here, 
what would we do for love? We talk about the love for Jesus Christ as if it's sort of an ethereal thing. It's a, it's a feeling in our heart. But what if love expresses itself by our hands and our actions in the force of our life? What if loving Jesus looks like something also? And I'm going to suggest that these three stories that Jesus told are very critical stories. They are a model of Jesus' love. They are a measure of how well we ourselves have learned to be disciples. Because see, when everyone who is, is fully taught, he will be like his master. And so we could look at these stories and we can say, am I really like him at all? Because if you're like Him, you'll do what He did. And it's a means for us on a regular basis to kind of measure ourselves. Where am I getting off track? Where is the focus of my walk and my love for Jesus Christ gotten lost in the weeds? So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Luke chapter 15. And this really isn't a lot to read here. I'm only going to be reading verses 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's pretty straightforward, right? I mean, all of us know these stories really well. And you also know the, the story about the prodigal son and everything, so I don't have to go into a lot of depth here. But let me tell you some things that are happening here. Obviously, Jesus is saying this because the, the Pharisees, the religious people, are scorning the fact that he's even spending time with sinners, with tax collectors, with the undesirable. Now, one thing you may not know, or you may, is that in order to join the Pharisee club, you had to, one of the things, it wasn't just knowing the Bible or being true to the law, uh, you also had to show your financial portfolio. Pharisees were always rich people. There wasn't a poor one among them. So, what would the impact of this story have been on them? You've got a guy with a hundred sheep. He loses one. How much were those coins worth? How much were those coins worth? She had ten coins and she lost one. How much were those coins worth? Well, I looked at Robertson's word pictures. Because I'm an educated seminary grad. And uh, this is what Robinson says. Uh, The word in Greek is drachma. And so that's a little piece of silver. Every one of those coins was worth, hold on to your hats, 20 cents. All 10 of those coins was worth about $2. All right? Now, this happened years ago, right? $2 could be a lot of money. Now, now, now Dick and Mike, they can remember back to 65, and they can tell you, how much $2 was worth. They say, in fact, that when the Civil War ended in 1865, you could buy a horse. (laughs) 
for two bucks. It may not be living, but you have to cut it up right away. I don't see Stan here, but if Stan was here, you could ask him, and he could probably tell you how much $2 was worth when the pilgrims landed. But see, the impact of the story is what? I mean, any one of us, if we knew this woman, we could say, here's, here's two bucks. It's like, don't even look for it. One day you're going to bump into it for 20. It was actually 18 cents. I just rounded up because I'm bad at math. You know, it was 18 cents. You're looking, you're, you're throwing your house, you're cleaning your house finally. Well, that'd be a good excuse, right? But you're doing this for 18 cents, really? The Pharisees would have been thinking, what? And see, here's the deal. It has to do with your mindset. Who was this woman? And what did this 18 cents mean to her? It meant enough that she let everything go and she swept her house and she searched for this thing diligently, right? What would be the importance for her? Maybe paying the rent, but here's the the manifest thing here. It was important to God. It was important to Jesus. And Jesus is sort of telling these guys a, a, a parable to test their hearts because they would not have thought this was important. And here's the question to us. How important is this to us? Are we like our Master? You know, because for these Pharisees, obviously... If I've got a hundred sheep and there's one, one that's lost in the wilderness, is it worth my while to go and get it? Uh, maybe I could write that one off. Eighteen cents? Not even worth looking for. find more in a Walmart parking lot sometimes. So what is the importance? And see, this is the test of our hearts too, isn't it? Is it really worth organizing our life around Because it is worth it to Jesus. It is worth it to Jesus. It is incredibly worth it to Jesus. There is a party in heaven when anyone, no matter who they are, comes to Jesus Christ. But the thing about the story that isn't often addressed is the urgency. The urgency of every one of these things. Okay, so the urgency of the lost sheep. Well, John told the story about Shrek. That doesn't happen that often, right? I think Shrek is one of a kind. Usually they don't become Shrek, they become lunch. Right? So the urgency is to get out there before that thing is lost. The urgency about reaching out to kids before sin really sets in. I mean, I could go on and on about this stuff. The urgency. What about the coin? I don't know what it meant to that woman. I really don't. Maybe she couldn't pay her rent if she didn't have that thing. Whatever the case was, there was urgency involved and that's expressed in what she does. And God's saying that that urgency is important. Now you get to the lost son and you kind of think to yourself, was that even urgent? Right? I mean, you don't see the father doing too much except if you pay attention to the story. As soon as the son's head comes over the horizon, what does the father do? He bolts. He's been looking expectantly every day for the son to come back and he goes nuts. 
And, and back then, you, if you were an old guy, you didn't run. I'm a young guy. I don't like to run either. You know, if you lived in Peachtree City, you'd get into your golf cart. I can see a, a squadron of golf carts going out to meet the sun. But the father was urgent about wanting his son to come. And there is a sense of urgency in all of these. And I think that's what we miss. We even talk about reaching the lost glibly. In God's eyes, this is an urgent thing that we are to set ourselves about. The gospel that Jesus preached, when he told his guys to go out and share the gospel, it was a very simple gospel. Go out and tell them to repent for the kingdom of God is coming. It's coming. Get ready. Romans chapter 13. Don't worry about the government. Pay your taxes. Be quiet. Do your work. Remember what hour it is. Salvation is closer now than it was before. And so therefore, there's urgency in that message. Hebrews, do not forsake, uh, stir up one another to love and good works. Do not forsake the, the gathering of yourselves together as is the habit of some. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day is drawing near. There's urgency in that. In 1 Corinthians, now these things are a warning for us upon whom the end of the age has come. Upon whom the end of the age has come. There's a certain amount of urgency to that. And in the thing on your bulletin there, Paul telling Timothy, preach the word, be urgent in season and out of season. And you know, the thing is, Okay, let's, let's be calm. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Let's just... And there's a place for patience. There really is. Because the fruit, the, the seed that bore fruit that was planted in the good soil, it bore fruit with patience, yet it bore fruit. It was bearing fruit. It had all, already addressed the issue of urgency. And it was bearing fruit. And I think as long as you're bearing fruit... Do it with patience. But we have to remember that the thing the Lord has asked us to do is urgent. And so it comes back down to this question again. How important are the lost sheep and the lost coins and the lost sons? Because that determines everything. And what if that is what the Lord is looking at when He says, how much do you love me? When He says... Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I ask you to do? We only have one commission in the church. It's called the Great One. And he says, go and do it. And somehow I think stories like this are meant to stir our hearts and show us what he wants. And have we really learned? Are we really disciples? And measure us. Where are we getting off track? So, here's the deal. If you really have a sense of urgency, and if this stuff really um, fastens into your heart, what might that look like? Point number one, you will do what you can. You will do crazy stuff. Why? Because you're, you're reaching out to lost sheep and lost coins and lost sons, 
and you put everything you have into it. When I was a missionary, look, I always felt like I was never adequate. And, and I'm not making this up at all. I felt like I was a toe doing a tongue's job. But you know what? They didn't send Chuck over there, and they didn't send John over there, and they didn't send Howie over there, and they didn't send those guys over there. I was there. And so what do you do? And you know, the Holy Spirit opened up a door for us, right, in ministry. And it was one I, I felt totally inadequate for, but we were seeing people come into Christ. It was in the youth ministry. And I asked this guy, I said, hey, can you train up a youth uh, a praise band for us? He's, well, you know, I can't do it in German. You know, so I, I won't tell you what he said in German. But, you know, if they can't speak, har- if they can't sing in harmony, I'm not going to even mess with them. And I go, what? So... I had to do it. I mean, I had to do it, right? And so what I did was, I didn't have any musical equipment, so I took our stereo. Our stereo, thankfully, had a, a microphone input in it, and I would take that with me every Sunday. They had a place called Media Mart that was kind of like fries, and I went and I figured a way to attach all these things onto it so we would have four microphones. And you know, have you ever seen uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation where that guy has all those things stuck into this thing? That's what that looked like. And it worked. I had to take it home every week and re-solder the, the board on it because I would be missing stuff because it would be jostling around in the back of the car and everything. But it worked. I call that missionary engineering. It's what you do because you've got to do it. I taught them all the Hillsong songs and everything. And then there was this one time I said to him, look, and these are are young kids, right? Um, uh, You know, 18s sort of. And and I said, okay, so here's what we're going to do in two weeks. And and since I knew what the message was because I was a pastor, I knew I I could work on this thing. I said, so in two weeks, you are singing this famous song, My Jesus, I Love Thee. And I showed it to him, and it's in German and everything, just sort of like good translation of what we have. And it was like I'd asked them to eat something they didn't want to eat. And they're, they're complaining. They're saying, look, I don't want to do that. I said, well, just try it out. Hang with me a little bit, you know? And so I taught them the song, and I'm not going to tell you what we did with the song. But when we got done with the song, everybody in the congregation was moved. I had people coming up who actually didn't really even like me, telling me how Good it came off. And you know why I'm telling you that story? Is because if you are excited about the right thing, sometimes the Holy Spirit just makes stuff work. It, and we, we didn't do it for any other reason than lost sheep, lost coins, lost sons. You know why? Because when I stood up and I looked over our group, which was smaller than this, I saw Mike, Mia's husband, who was not a believer. And I saw Christoph. Kate's husband, who is not a believer. And they invited their friends to our worship service in Murat. He was a, 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 um, a Muslim Turkish kid. And it was exciting to try weird and unusual stuff and see the Lord bless it. It causes you to do stuff. If it motivates you. The language. You know, I've been, I've been back in the States since 2000. And people ask me, well, Dan, did you, did you, you feel like you've lost a lot of your German? There wasn't nothing to lose. It was always bad. And I'm not making this up. 
I'm not trying to be over humble. Um, you know how I knew if I preached too long in Germany? I would look at people, and when I would see blood begin to trickle out of their ear, hmm, I thought, you better put a lid on this one, bud. But what drives you? What in the world drives you? We're having this one prayer meeting right before the worship service, and there was this one guy there. Eventually, he became a huge problem in the church. And I knew that he was going to hit me about my language ability and that. And we're just sharing. And one of the things I shared with him was on the Friday before when we did youth, somebody gave their life to Christ. And I could see the joy draining out of his face. Because what he's thinking is how does somebody with bad first grade German lead anybody to Christ? I went to a kid's camp, and and usually I had everything manuscripted when I preached, but I'm realizing I can't do that. It's just, it's like having shackles on to do that. And so I go to this kid's camp, and and these were people that liked me and I liked them, and I just thought, I've got to lay this stuff down. I took it before the Lord. I said, Lord, I can't do this anymore with this manuscript. And so I just started teaching there, you know, just like I would in English and everything. I came back and I put that into practice with the, and I couldn't do that with the youth, obviously, with the church and everything. And people coming up and saying, hey, that just sounds so much different. But I was, I, I was crucifying the language. What I'm trying to say is this. Why do you do that? What motivates you? What makes you jump over your own shadow? What gives you a heart bigger than the heart you possess? The lost sheep, the lost coins, and the lost sons. That's what does it for you. It becomes your heart. It takes over your heart. It becomes exciting. It becomes part of everything you do in ministry. When we did children's work, it was part of the children's work. I would tell them, you're not doing that just for yourself. You're doing that because we have lost people coming in. And and Christoph and Keita, um, you know, before Keita trusted Christ, they were coming to church. They were friends of ours when we lived in Felon and everything. And and Alexander, their son, would go into the room early on, Tuesday, uh, on Sunday morning and say, Okay, you two, what's going on in here? Church is in an hour and a half. Because he wanted to be with Greg, and he wanted to be with Stefan, and all of this kind of stuff. A little non-Christian kid telling his parents, Get with it, get up. Because he was, there was something happening. And the youth work, it grew and they were bringing their friends in because we were trying to reach out to lost sheep and lost coins and lost sons. There is a thrill to this that is really hard to express. Um, you know... Uh, Willow Creek, a lot of people put Willow Creek down, but I would just say this. If you knew Willow Creek in its early days and you knew the heart that drove them, um, you understand why they did what they did. And I've heard so many people put, it, put this all down as, oh, it was just all performance and it was all this and it was all that. No, it was a heart that went for broke to reach out to lost people. And uh, it may have become something else, but yeah. You... And you know, and people will argue. And let me, I'm just going to take you real quick to an, uh, another portion of scripture. You don't even have to turn there. It's uh, it's kind of up there. You can see it. First Corinthians chapter 11 through 14. These are the only four chapters in the New Testament in the Bible written to a worship service. Okay. 
So, some people will say, you know, the worship service is for us. Thankfully, we don't even call this the worship service, right? We call this a family Bible hour, so anybody can come here. But in a worship service, this is for the holy, the sanctified. This isn't for them. This is for us. Okay, good. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Right? The first part of it is women who pray or prophesy with their head uncovered. This is public, by the way. Women who pray or prophesy with their head uncovered are dishonoring their husbands. So publicly, women, when they pray or prophesy in that assembly, needed to do it like this. But that's public. And then you go right, the second part of chapter 11 is the breaking of the bread. That's public. And they were disgracing, dishonoring the Lord in the breaking of the bread. And then you get in chapter 12. Chapter 12 is talking about something Paul is going to work up toward in chapter 14. But it's like, well, how do the gifts fit in? Because they had free expression of the gifts during their worship service. How do the gifts fit in? And Paul is having to do some maintenance on these people and showing them what the gifts are for and how they're used you know, a little bit. And then he gets to chapter 13 and he says, but... Everything has to be done in love. And then when he gets in chapter 14, he's getting really close, and he starts talking about a tension between uh, the misuse of the gifts of tongues. And he says, look, I know you all want to speak in tongues, but even more, this is what I want you to prophesy. The prophetic teaching of the Word of God, how it, the Word, the truth, hits life. Now, the reason I'm going through this long digression like this is this. These are the only chapters that I know of in the New Testament that are written to the worship service of a church. The word worship occurs one time in that entire section. Only one time. And Paul says this, Now, brethren, if you gather together and everyone speaks in tongues, and an unbeliever and un- outside, an unbeliever outsider enters... Won't he say that you are mad? The implicit answer is yes. But if all prophesy and an outsider unbeliever enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are exposed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Those are loaded words, and I'm not even going to take the time to go into them. The only time you see the word worship mentioned in those four chapters, it comes out of the mouth of an unbeliever. Paul expected that the service of a church should be able to speak to an unbeliever and make sense, especially the prophetic, we, we wouldn't say the new revelation, but the prophetic teaching of the Word of God. And then the next part where he actually talks about putting worship service together, let all things be done for edification. Worship only comes out of the mouth of an unbeliever. And you will really know that God is among you. So what I'm saying is this. If the love of Christ is in our hearts and we are really concerned about the sheep and the coins and the lost sons, It motivates us to do a lot of great things. Inviting people into the church and reaching out to people. And the thing is, we can do it as a team. We can do it as a team. Because this is important to our Lord. I think that if the the sheep and the coins and the lost sons are really important to us, 
we will embrace chaos. Some of us who have had younger kids, I had four of them, you have to embrace chaos because you just live in it every day. But here's the deal. And I'm saying this kind of out of 40-some years of being in church leadership in one way or another. And we need to organize it around it. Our tendency sometimes in a church is to organize the chaos out of a church. And we don't need that because it's God who brings in the chaos. The increase of fruit in Proverbs 14, this is that one verse that John talked about, about the oxen making a mess. If you have oxen, they're going to make a mess. But with the oxen comes increase in fruit. It becomes increase in gain. And so you don't get rid of the oxen. You organize around the oxen. You use its strength. And I would say every church needs to embrace chaos. And you see I put a little bit of German in there too. So the word in chaos, the word in German for chaos is chaos. Um, chaos. And the people, a, a person who creates chaos is a chaot. Almost like a coyote. Uh, maybe similarities. Uh, a chaot. And if you have two of them, you have chaoten. And that's almost an affectionate name in Germany. It's like, ah, these two guys, two brothers show up. Ah, the Kauten are finally here. Now we can begin. We would say yahoos. But let me tell you, this is really important. When you look at the book of Acts, the book of Acts isn't so much the acts of the apostles, but the acts of the Holy Spirit. And the apostles are kind of running behind them, trying to clean up the mess. Peter preaches, Right? He preaches in Acts, and 3,000 people come to faith. Another fine mess you got us into, Holy Spirit. Now what are we going to do? Well, thankfully, they knew what to do with this huge mess. They organized around the mess that the Holy Spirit created. And you can almost go through chapter by chapter and see that it's really the Holy Spirit doing all this stuff. So who are the front men of the apostles? They were all yahoos. Every one of them. Peter, need I say more? Right? Okay, yeah, but James and John, they were very sedate men. You mean the brothers Boanerges? The sons of thunder? They were wild men. Jesus even gave them a nickname that said they were wild men. But then, finally things settled down when the Apostle Paul came along. Right? What a madman. Talk about a guy with no filter. You know? If it's right, I'm going to say it's right. If it's wrong, I'm going to tell you it's wrong. Oh, put your sword away. Oh, you're not putting your sword away. And then he ran. He had to. That's how Paul, that's the design of Paul's ministry. When they threatened to kill him, he finally had to leave. And there's this amusing part in Acts, I think it's chapter 10. Verse 30, it says, Paul left Jerusalem. Verse 31, and the church had peace. Okay. So here's the, here's the thing, is that the church has to learn. There is, some, there is a settling thing. There is a gravity in the church about wanting peace, wanting it to all be about Sunday, wanting to not... And, and so what happens, and this is very natural, not only to the church, but all to other um, organizations, they usually lose their vision in the third generation. You have the founders. Take uh, Operation Mobilization. George Verwer, not a sane bone in that man's body, right? 
He buys two ships. He gets a huge thing going. They're traveling all over the world. And then behind George Brewer come these guys and say, yeah, but you know, who's going to organize all this mess? You're way out there in front of the troops. We got to start organizing. And so they're organizing around the mess. The third generation become all managers. And what happens when you get all managers in is they start putting to death the visionaries. And you start losing the guys with, the, with this flaming desire. And what I'm saying here is that if reaching out to the lost sheep and the lost coins and the lost sons is important, we have to keep those guys alive. See, because we talk about church leadership and obviously... Obviously, we have a plurality of elders. Okay, coaches, if you will. But the thing is, there are also gifts. And the thing is, gifts are not democratic in any way, shape, or form. God gives them. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. According to His own design. It's not, if you wanted to use this like a basketball team, it's not a guy's fault that he's seven feet tall. But if you got him on the team, use him as a center. Don't try to use him as a forward. Don't say, well, this is democratic here, you know. We got a guy here who's five foot six and he'd like to be center too. Why don't we vote? Really? But see, that happens in churches across the nation every single day. If God gives you a seven foot person and he's a godly seven foot person, use him. He may need a little bit of coaching. He may need some nurturing, but don't try to make him be five foot six. You use what the Lord has given you. In Ephesians chapter 4, you have foundational gifts in the church. And God has given first apostles, second prophets. Okay, now we say these are the Word of God. Okay? Then evangelists. Nobody talks about the evangelists when they talk about Ephesians chapter 4. And then shepherd teachers. Okay, these are foundational gifts. What are those gifts for? They are two Build up the body. Train the body for the work of the ministry. This is the work of the ministry. Getting a solid home base, but we're an outreach organization. And the thing is, we need visionaries. We need evangelists. We need the pastor teachers for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature and fullness of Christ, no longer being children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together with every part which it, with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes for bodily growth. That's the body getting bigger with more people. And it builds itself in love. That's eternally taking care of ourselves. And we've got to do this. You know, I, I kind of shot myself in the foot when I was in seminary. Um, uh, John and I both, we, it, we have a week when we're graduating called Senior Preaching Week. And I know John went for it. He and I talked together about this, you know, the Top Gun Award. We're going to go for the Top Gun Award, you know, flying upside down over the MiGs and all this stuff, you know. And so the thing was, here's the deal. In order to qualify for senior preaching, you had to get a pure A. You had to get a pure A. Now, we called the kiss of death getting an A-. minus. Knocked you out of the competition. It was a polite way of saying, we don't want you. So, my senior sermon 
was on the second person you hire, hire an evangelist. I, I've got to tell you, I, I got the kiss of death on that one. But you get the kiss of death in every church in the United States and around the world sometimes. Because you know what? The reality is the lost sheep, the lost coins, and the lost sons aren't as important to us as just having a nice, comfortable church where we can come on Sundays and sing some songs and go home. And if you... But here's the thing. If you don't do this... If you don't build up the vision, if you don't nurture your visionaries, I mean, I can show you management books that say this. I can show you Douglas Hyde's book, Dedication and Leadership, say this. You will lose your people. Because, see, anybody with a sense of urgency operates at a certain internal speed. Now, they have to learn to harness that, but the thing is, they won't do it forever. And if you try to make them do it forever, they'll join parachurch organizations. They will, float, they will let their energy... I have seen guys start stamp collections. And, and, and collect license plates. And start in some multi-level marketing baloney. Guys who were soul winners. Because they felt so shut off at church. There was no place for them. It became bureaucracy. It became, you know... We just, you know, we're going to go at this speed. And the thing is, we, there's a price to pay. You know, churches, and Bob Logan, you know, I mean, he, he actually uses the word liar, but, uh, you know, when he talks about this. But the thing is, churches will say, you know, we really want an evangelist. We really want to reach the people around us. And we want to hire a man who will do that for us. And then Bob Logan says, yeah, but, eh. so you get in there. And these guys will get in there and they'll start doing stuff. And they go, whoa, well, well, we can't do that. Okay, well, let's do this. Ah, you know, can't do that either. Well, well, how about if we put a doorknob on the front door so that people can enter from the street instead of having to go around the back and come in the parking lot? Well, we got the deacon of doorknobs. It takes him eight months to put a doorknob on the door. You know, it's like this guy with his internal thing, he can't. Take it. So you got to consider the cost. If you really want to race, you really want a racehorse, you really have to race. If you really want an ox uh, to plow, you got to let the ox plow. If you really want a Yahoo, you have to listen to him go Yahoo, because that's what they do. They're looking for something to do. Oh, I'm going to skip over this stuff because I'm running way behind here. This pastor I know, I mean, a lot of this time, I, you know, you see this. I, I've been doing this for a long time, and it's just stuff that makes you want to cry. I saw a pastor burn out all of the guys, all of his staff after, under him. Why? Because he was insecure. Uh, he didn't want anybody to look taller than he was. Um, he mongered power. He wanted to have a big name in the Dallas community. Um, so he blocked his staff. And these guys were gifted guys. 
And he burned every one of them out. And burning out people like that is a dangerous thing because what happens is when you're spiritually sensitive, what that does to you is you start fighting with yourself. And you're saying, well, Lord, I shouldn't feel like this. I should be able to go at this pace. And the thing is, God didn't make you to go at that pace. And the more you hold yourself back, the worse you feel about yourself. And this guy would stand here and he would keep all his staff behind him and he would say, now you need to walk at my pace. They couldn't have a vision better than his vision. They couldn't do anything that he didn't allow. And there was one guy who was amazing. He set up their children's ministry. He set up their young adult, or their, their um, adult ministry, Sunday school, the whole thing. It was the best Sunday school I'd ever seen in my life. When he left there, he was out of ministry. I don't even, he said for six months. I don't know that he ever got back into it. Because the cost of burning visionaries out is just an incredible cost to pay. And I'm just going to move on here. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, I think you do everything. Everything you can. And you do it with joy and gusto. Because there's no better way to live on earth. You know, the thing is, I have, I have gotten whacked many, many times in ministry. And the thing is, is one thing about being proven in ministry in Jesus is that you learn a little bit from it, but you don't lose your desire. You just keep on going. Because you know it has to do not with the church so much as it has to do with Jesus himself and the lost sheep and the lost coins and the lost sons. And that's exhilarating to have that driving your heart. And you need to appreciate. I mean, I worked with this guy in New York City, Rajan. He was like this little Superman kind of guy, but he only worked well in a team. And they killed him in that church. For the short time that he and I worked for, together, I, when I was in New York City, I led like, six, I don't know, maybe six, seven people of Christ. Three of them were through Rajan because he would bring him in the office. Hey, I got somebody I need you to talk to. He was out there making contacts all the time. You have to appreciate and organize around the Yahoos. You've got to nurture them. But the, the thing here is you've got to pray. And 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 then when you're done, you've got to pray. And you gotta pray, and you gotta pray, and you gotta pray, and you gotta pray like you really mean it. Not, not our little polite, quiet prayers. You gotta pray like it's in your gut, and it's like it's gonna explode out, and you gotta keep on praying. Here's the reality of life. The reality is we may not do it. The reality is we may not do it. We may fail. Why do I say that? 4,000 old wineskins are retired in the United States every year. 4,000 old wineskins. The average size of a wineskin is 75 people. The average size of the church in the United States is 75 people. Okay? And when I say old wineskins, a lot of those old wineskins folks have guitars. And they're singing all the, local, the, the new songs. Because, see, being an old wineskin doesn't mean what you have in the church as much as where your heart is and what you're willing to do. You show me a church that's reaching lost people. They will stay fresh. They will be innovative. They will do all sorts of crazy things. They will have yahoos among them. And we'll all work with them. And it'll be fun. But the thing is, I know of churches that were planted from a mother church and they brought all the new equipment in. And what they also brought from the mother church was just wanting to have Sunday morning. 
usually in a church, a new church plant, because they, they, they refresh themselves, they reblue themselves in the mission of the church. They see new people come to Christ within the first few months. Our church in Noivie did. And it wasn't through the youth. It was through some, it was Keita actually. Because that's where their heart and their desire is for the, the sheep and the coins and the lost people. So Jesus gives these um, illustrations to the disciples about prayer. And you know the one about the knocking on the door. Midnight, banging on the door. Banging on the door. And the guy says, I, mean, yeah, I can't do it. And he keeps banging on the door. Why would Jesus give that model of prayer for us? Unless He wants us to do it. And then you've got this other one where Jesus talks about the woman pestering the judge to death. Pestering him to death. So He finally caves in. And Jesus says, now listen to the unrighteous judge. And will not God vindicate His elect who cry out to Him day and night. Yes, I tell you, He will quickly vindicate them. But, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? We go, well, duh, Jesus. Here I am. I got faith in You. But no, that's not what He said. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? What does it look like? Crying out day and night, pestering the Father to death. Why? Lost sheep, lost coins, lost sons. Is it worth it? It's worth it. So let me quote a couple things from the chief Yahoo, one of the chief Yahoos in the church. And see if this makes sense to you. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And then he skips to the end of that chapter and he says, But though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Not myself being under the law, that I might reach those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being without law to God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those under the law, uh, without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. I've done it all for the sake of the Gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Brethren, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete? So run that you may be able to obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control over all things. They do it for a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I pummel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
And then that verse we have here. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living of the dead and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be urgent in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort. Be unfailing in patience and teaching. For the time is coming. And folks, the time is here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your love. Lord Jesus, we thank You for these stories. I thank You that You have made sure they were written down. And I thank You that there is a depth in each one of them that is more than we can plumb in a lifetime. But the response that I need to see in my own heart is that I'm willing to follow. I am willing to say the greatest value on this earth after you is reaching out to those people who you love, those people for whom you gave your life, those people that are so precious in your sight where everyone can say they have no worth in my sight. You let that one sheep go. You say, go after that one sheep, and I will rejoice when you find him. That coin worth only 20 cents is worth it to you for us to reach out and rearrange the entire house and rearrange everything so that we can find it. And that lost son, we were that lost son. And so, Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, help us. Give us a passion. Give us vision. Give us energy. Give us ideas. Help us not to sink into the gravity of seeing this whole thing as being about ourselves. And we will see you do great and amazing things because your power, I believe, is totally unleashed when we are pursuing our Lord in the harvest. We thank you and we love you. Amen.